Hi, welcome. This is Dr. John Martini. This is one of the most amazing and inspiring shows that you can listen into. If you want to be on the edge of your seats, if you want to open up your heart, if you want to expand your mind, and you want to meet incredible people, stay tuned because you're just about to experience a transformative radio show that will change your life. And you're listening to the Dr. Pat Show that's coming up right next. The following audio is via a Skype call. Welcome to the Dr. Pat Show. Talk radio to thrive by. Powerful, inspiring, and coming to you live, bringing you stories of people like you and me, busting through and living life full out. Get ready to dare to wonder what your life would be like if you knew you could not fail. Hey, everybody. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Yes, indeedy. I'm back in town. Back in town, Benny. <laughs> That's good to hear. I'm glad you had a good Thanksgiving, right? Yeah. I had a good Thanksgiving. Awesome. What was even more more good about it? More good. Is that like, did I, more good? Is that like a word? More sure. good. Why not? All right. Uh, was that Linda's brother actually came home from the hospital oh, on Thanksgiving and we to got hear. to have it with him. Yeah, it was yeah. very good to hear. So for those of you out there, it gave me new and inspired motivation to bring back Lime Talk Radio. Lime Talk Radio. Yep, we're bringing it back. Because my ignorance, don't you love that when I say things like that? My ignorance. <laughs> my ignorance about the state of affairs in educating the public and the world uh, and maybe maybe naive. I think I'm naive. Just because we do what we do, Benny, and, and my guest, Mitch, does what he does, um, it doesn't mean that everybody knows what we're talking about. It. So if nothing else, we are going to bring it big time, big time in 2019. Mitch Horowitz joining me here today. The Miracle Club. Yes, I love this. I love the timing of it. I love that we're talking about it. You know, Mitch, of course, is a Penn Award-winning historian, longtime publishing executive, leading a new thought communicator with bylines in the New York Times, Time, Politico. I like that. Uh, Wall Street Journal, et cetera. More importantly, I don't feel alone anymore because of him and because of his book. I don't feel alone. And you're going to hear why. Mitch, it's great to have you here today. Thank you so much. Great to be here. You know, it's interesting about it's interesting about the your your name, what I just talked about with Lyme disease, and the facts that a very dear friend of mine, uh, Dr. Richard Horowitz. I mean, you can't make this stuff up. <laughs> you can't make it up. So when the universe does like stuff like that, and you're going to talk about this today, you just can't make it up. Um, but today we're talking about the Miracle Club. What I love about this is that we now live in a time where the energy, whether you believe in Jupiter being in Sagittarius for the next year, whatever you believe, <laughs> I'm a Sagittarius, I believe. Same it. here. Yes. Yes. <laughs> so what, that's why you and I are smiling right now. That's right. I'm, I'm sending you happy emojis. Yeah. Yes. We've got to have some good information. Mm-hmm. We've got to have good information. And... I don't want to go through the rest of my life figuring out how to get things done, 
how to create what it is we want to create. I don't want any more guesswork. So I want to ask you, when you wrote this book, what did you discover? Did you discover that we were out there doing a whole bunch of things that perhaps not getting us what we wanted? What did you discover to say, I got to write the book? Oh, wow. Well, the primary thing I discovered while I was writing the book is that there can be a real-time interval that occurs between our concentrated thoughts about something and the actualization of those things in our world. Uh, I started the book with a critical belief that mind metaphysics has validity, that our thoughts are agents of causality in some way. Not the only agents of causality. We live under many different laws and forces, but the effects of the mind, the impact of the mind in a concrete way, in a way that goes beyond the cognitive and motor functions is real. And I wrote the book with that conviction. And where the book brought me to, uh, having started in that place, was that we are very often strangers to the things that we wish for and ask for. And things that we may have really harbored as deeply held values when we were young do come back to us in waves when we are older. And these things catch us unaware because we're so forgetful. There's a time interval, there's a period of gestation, and frankly, we're also strangers to ourselves. We spend our whole lives, very often, repeating things to ourselves that we think we're supposed to believe, that we think that we're supposed to want, that we think will reflect well upon us in our peer group or what we think our peer group is, is believing or expecting of us. And the truth is, it's quite uncommon, quite uncommon that we make the effort to come face-to-face -face in an exquisitely intimate and unembarrassed way with what we really want. And people run from what they want because they have a self-conception that I'm a family-oriented person or I'm a nice person in some way. And whatever way they define themselves, and we all do it, may be shattered, in fact, by coming face-to-face -face with a really heartfelt desire. It may also help explain why our intentions and the experiences of our lives seem so divergent sometimes. They should be divergent because we are in pieces. And one of the things I try to counsel in this book from the very start is how rare it is and how important it is to really come to terms with what you want. We are strangers to ourselves. I got to tell you this. This is why I'm so excited to talk to you today. My background is really interesting. And mm -hmm. my listeners have heard me share this. My mom committed suicide when I was six. Mm. By the time I got through a horrific teen years, I was homeless at 17. Mm -hmm. And my life changed in many ways. But I met my dear friend, Linda, when I was 22. She is now the producer. So you're on the show because Linda... Got that thing going on, right? Uh -huh. My best friend. And I turned to her one day in, it, okay, I'm going to date myself, 22 years old. I turned to her and I said, Linda, I am going to get a PhD. Mm -hmm. And Linda looked at me without any question and said, of course you are. And then I said to her, 22, I don't even know what that, what is that? What is the PhD? Uh -huh. Because I wanted a PhD because I delivered mail in the phone company to a bunch of really happy people. Uh -huh. They were happy. They taught me how to play ping pong. Uh -huh. They juggled. They uh -huh. were scientists. They showed me their frogs. 
and they had PhD at the end of their name. Interesting. That did not happen until I did lose that job after 24 and a half years. But the progression of events were like you talk about in the book. Everything from Brian McGorry saying to me, Pat, you got to go to school at night Mm -hmm. and going out on a limb for me. But it took me to 19... 91 and 92 Mm -hmm. to have that reality happen. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. How do we reconcile in our minds the time gap? Now, I was really clear I wanted to get it, but not for the reason that I now know today it was so the listeners could rename the show and call me Dr. Pat, and then we do this work in the world. Yes. But how how do we talk about that so that people understand that there are series of events that create the, the, the touch points, right, that get us to where we ultimately really want to go. Yeah. Well, one thing I ask people to do, and one challenge that I issue to people, including to myself, is to ask themselves who they were and what they wanted and how they conceived of themselves when they were very, very young, say around age four. There's an uncanny congruency between how we first conceive our, of ourselves at, at the earliest age where we're able to direct our attention, form memories, apply those memories to ourselves, if you date yourself back to that earliest stage of memory formation, you will find an uncanny congruency between what you were thinking about and events in your life, either joyous or tragic, joyous or tragic. I recall very vividly, and I've only started disclosing this recently, I remember with vivid clarity that when I was four, five, six years old and beyond, I was playing the ordinary games that boys play, you know, cops and robbers, cowboys and Indians, you know, war games and things like that, all the ordinary games. But when I was doing it, unbeknownst to my friends, I was actually picturing myself as an actor on a movie set doing it. I was picturing myself as a guy who was on a soundstage or on a location being shot, being filmed, doing it. That was my private fantasy. It wasn't something that a six-year-old kid ever shares with his or her friends. And it was only years later, well past the age of 40, that I stepped out in front of the camera and began to function as a, a narrator, a writer, a TV host, and so on and so forth. And It was a yearning in me that had been cemented when I was very, very young. But it's the kind of thing that you you, you tend to keep to yourself, especially when you're young. But I felt such a a yawning gap of something missing in my life throughout my 20s, throughout my 30s. And although I was successful as a publishing executive, it was a fitful success. Nobody could tell me that I was... Uh, doing the thing I was supposed to do, that I was performing the thing that I was supposed to perform, I felt just very um, incomplete and almost uh, like a bit of an imposter. And then when I underwent the realization that this was what I really wanted, which I began to feel in my late 30s, and today I just recently turned 53, When I began to uh, come to terms with what I really, truly wanted, 
it changed everything for me. The direction of my life changed. My relationships, my energies, my outlook, my productivity, my sense of self, my sense of self-respect, the way I related to other people around me. It took decades for me to come back and own what I had wanted to do when I was a kid. And it changed everything. And it also accelerated my ability to get where I wanted to go because suddenly I had a clear mental picture of what that was. I was no longer hiding from it. And there were acts of selection going on in my life. Selection, both physical and metaphysical, I would, I would venture, that were making a difference and made a difference in a real hurry because I had no time to waste. Yeah. I didn't publish my first book, Occult America, until I was probably about 43, 44 years old. And that was nine, 10 years ago. I've never felt I've had time to waste. And so getting clear on what I really wanted and what my definite aim was made things happen very, very quickly. I got to ask you this question because I love this. I mean, you know, some people look at my, we were joking about the astrology chart. So some people look at my chart and say, don't worry about it. You have four planets in Capricorn, four in Sagittarius. Your moon's in Capricorn. You're a late bloomer. Yeah. But I, yes, I don't. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. I, yeah. <laughs> and when somebody told me that, I was thinking like, okay, I don't even know what that means. Right. But I got to ask you this question because this is what happened to me. Mm-hmm. I did not have the courage to leave that 24 year, 24 and a half year job. I had I had listened to my mentors. I had gone back to school 13 mm-hmm. years to get an undergraduate degree, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. but I did it. And I had a lot of angels along the way help. Mm-hmm. But when it came time for me to leave and pursue that PhD, mm-hmm. I couldn't do it. Mm. But I became a rebel in that company, an HR executive that would not implement downsizing. Uh-huh. So when you said that to me about four years old and five years old, I had to go back. And here's what I discovered. At four and five years old, I was a pistol. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I, was, I was defiant. Mm-hmm. I would go across the street and hang out with my sister's big friends. Mm-hmm. I would just not listen. I would love talking and communicating, but I was up against it. And I stayed that way. I was one of these people. I didn't look for a fight, but I noticed things annoyed me that mm-hmm. I wanted to do things differently. Mm-hmm. 24 and a half years with the same telephone company, I didn't want to implement a downsizing program and fire somebody with 29 years, 11 months of service. Yeah. But that particular thing sent me off in a direction. Did you have things like that happen to you? What was the catalyst that you said, oh, wait a minute, I remember I'm that kid? Yeah. Well, the, I, I had a series of catalysts that brought home to me how incomplete I felt in my job as a publisher versus being a writer versus being a speaker versus being a a host. I remember that I was telling a friend of mine that I felt I had taken a cheap way out in a certain sense and I was helping to facilitate other people's dreams rather than my own. And I remember my friend tried to reassure me as good friends do and he said, look, take a look at the Beatles. You had John Lennon, you know, who was one of the front men, who was the guy in front of the camera. But you also had Brian Epstein, their first manager, and Brian Epstein, who helped facilitate everything that the Beatles were about. And his role in terms of shaping the band was as significant in some regards as John Lennon's. So what's wrong with being Brian Epstein? And I said to him, you know, you're making a good point. 
And there's nothing wrong with being Brian Epstein, but it's not who I want to be. I want to be John Lennon, not Brian Epstein. I love Brian Epstein. I will, you know, I will thank Brian Epstein, do anything for him, but it's not who I want to be. And I had a series of events like that. I also remember, and I, I say this in complete candor because you and your guests are entitled to complete candor. One of the things that really struck me about publishing uh, was the extent to which I didn't like depending upon the quality or reliability of other writers apropos of meeting their deadlines, doing their work, getting things finished. I wanted to do it myself. I didn't want to be dependent upon whether some third party would do a mediocre job, whether they'd be late. I really, you know, to be quite frank with you, after about three decades, I got really tired of it. I mean, I only want to work with impeccable people <laughs> and uh, I don't always get my wish, but I get it a fair amount of the time. And I try to live up to it myself as best I can. If I, I, my personal belief is that if you have a deadline, other than reasons of medical emergency, there's no reason to miss it. And I noticed that many people don't even try to put in half a day effort, half a day's effort before th waving a white flag and saying, "Well, gee, I just can't meet my deadline." You know, have you tried? Have you moved heaven and earth? Maybe you can meet it, actually. And then yeah. you can live up to your word, live up to your obligation, get paid, be good to people around you, including the people who have backed your project and so on. I, I take all that very seriously. And that, in addition to wishes of creativity, wishes of artistry, wishes of being in front of the camera, that wish for self-sufficiency, for self-reliance of a sort – uh, also became a kind of catalyst, a kind of wake-up call for me. Why should I depend upon other artists to say something, especially if they don't feel as passionate or dedicated as I would ultimately wish? Uh, do it myself. You know, that, that became a choice for me. I, I'm totally right there with you. <laughs> I'm totally there. I mean, <clears throat> just look at us, right? <laughs> two Number, Sagittarians. Just look, two Sagittarians. One is I am a network owner in the world of network owner. I've, of course, I'm the host of the Dr. Pat show. Mm -hmm. but, but 10 years ago, when I tried to get syndication done the way, what did you say? The way the people do it. Yeah. It was like, that is not, that is not happening. Totally. And so I said, I'm going to start the transformation radio <laughs> network. Right, right, right. right. I don't know what that was. I think my stepmom influenced me. But as I'm reading the book, and, and for those of you just tuning in, I just, first of all, I love this. Uh, the Miracle Club, How Thoughts Become Reality. Mitch Horowitz joining me here today. I'm reading this, and I'm reading about methods and mind power. Yeah. Right? And we're going to talk about a bunch of things in here today. I got to ask you this. I mean, you did so much research on this. You went through... Uh, clearly for me, we have a couple of things in common with the people that we kind of look at and we follow and that we, we love. Right. Um, but as I'm reading this, mm -hmm. I'm thinking to myself out of everything out there. Yeah. How did you discover this? How did you discover this? And especially when you're taking us through, you know, Butler's full affirmation, I'm so curious. I mean, because I I attribute a lot to intuition and yeah, a yeah. lot of other things. I don't know if I'm on base with that. But for you, you're so clear about this mm -hmm. and how this works. It's very refreshing to me. 
I appreciate that. Thank you. Wow. Well, my journey of discovery, I could say it began when I was a kid because I was always interested in metaphysics. But the truth is, for a good deal of my life, metaphysics took a back seat. If you would ask you know, my friends and people close to me, they would say, yeah, he was interested in it, but it wasn't something that was worn on his forehead. It wasn't a primary interest. And I was working for a political publisher and I got fired and I was looking for a new job. And I got interviews at just the fanciest places you could imagine. I mean, you name a opinion-making publication, I was <laughs> interviewed there. But no offers came. And it was very frustrating because, you know, when you're in that position of you know, just being inches away from grabbing the golden ring or what you think is the golden ring and, and nothing happens. And I thought to myself, this is becoming a serious problem. So I accepted an offer to become an editor at a new age publisher, which was then called Tarcher Putnam, later be called, became yeah. Tarcher Penguin. And my friends from the literary world thought I was crazy. They would always ask me, how are you doing? You know, as though I were being, um, uh, going into the hospital or something, or, you know, was coping with some chronic disease. <laughs> and, uh, and I was doing fine was the answer. I was doing fine because I knew that this place where I spent three decades, just about, was going to provide me with some kind of a springboard for what I needed to accomplish in the world. And I began to read deeply into the backlist of that place. And I discovered books on mind metaphysics by people like Ernest Holmes, Science of Mind was a particular standout book, lovely man, brilliant. This, this thing called you. Yes. This thing book. called you is like, where is that book? <laughs> It's one of his greats. It, it is yeah. the great. It's I the think great, it's one yeah. of the great of yeah. the greats and the great if we're going to talk about this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, it's, it's a, it's a life-changing book if one's open to its message. And I read Ernest, and I loved him, and I said to myself, okay, this is a piece of the truth. That, that was an indelible certainty for me. And I said to myself, I don't feel it's the whole truth. It's not everything, right. but it's a piece of the truth. And that began my search. And as you see in the book, you know, I visited a lot of different neighborhoods, so to speak, to ask what is out there, what works, what works for me, what works for my friends, my loved ones, where is the testimony most persuasive, and why does it work? You know, I began to ask myself the question, why have we never come up with a, a theory of positive thinking, of, of why, if anything is happening at all, any of this stuff should work, you know, beyond the psychological level. And so that fueled my passion to write the book. And my, um, my journeys were, were long and I'd like to think rewarding. Well, I would like to think they are because uh, they are rewarding because you and I are sitting here talking about it. Yeah. And, you know, we're, we have very similar parallel paths because, you know, for me, I finished that, that PhD yeah. And I went through and I studied the consequences of broken promises for eight years. How I was depressed. Wow. Uh -huh. I, uh, my research won awards. My postdoctorate won awards. They wanted me to continue to research it. Uh -huh. Uh -huh. You can't have 1,200 pages of interview notes of people going through psychological contract violation, betrayal, injustice, and still be human. Yes, I, yes. I was so burned out. So yeah. I love the idea that you and I end up on the past because we've been fired from jobs. Like mm -hmm. I've been fired from every job I've ever had. Uh -huh. <laughs> but there's something else in the book that you point to, and I want to ask you about it. Please. 
when we come back, I want to talk about what happens when you put visualization with inspiration and perspiration. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Is that a formula that we just don't talk about enough, but you do in the book in a different way? We're going to take a short break. When we come back, we got three copies of this fabulous book to give away, The Millionaire Club, Mitch Horowitz. We're going to tell you how you can find out about Mitch, about everything else. When we come back, have you ever wondered why your office mate seems to get like all of the golden nuggets, the baubles, the promotions, but you're reading everything you need to read. You're watching whatever you need to watch. And there you sit. What's up with that? Let's take a short break. When we come back. We're going to talk about that. We're going to talk about methods and mind power. And we're going to talk about how you can get a copy of this great book. Let's take a short break. We'll be right back. To see your life from an angel's perspective, book a personal consultation with Claire Candy Hoff, angelic walk-in angel Ariel at Angel Healing House. Candy provides intuitive counseling, Reiki, and angel readings in person in Los Angeles or nationally and internationally via phone or Skype. She will channel the practical tools you need to transform your life. Call now, 831-277-3716 or visit angelhealinghouse.com. Interested in deepening your spiritual practice? The School for Esoteric Studies offers online training to spiritual seekers from all paths of life and individual coaching. Our courses synthesize Eastern and Western spiritual traditions based on meditation, study, and service applied to everyday life. To learn more about our courses and services, please visit www.esotericstudies.net. Do you find yourself wondering, why me? Learn a new shift in perspective to see how everything that takes place in your life is actually working for you and shifting you towards your own enlightenment. Tune in to Blank Enlightenment Radio with Misty Thompson each month on TransformationTalkRadio.com. For more, visit MistyMThompson.com. That's MistyMThompson.com. Tune in to Knowledge Book Radio with host Marge Potasic each Tuesday at 1 p.m. Pacific, 4 p.m. Eastern on TransformationTalkRadio.com. Through many experiences, Marge was led to the Knowledge Book, a gift to humanity in its transition to the Golden Age, and it provided the truth and the answers. She now shares information from the Knowledge Book with you each week on TransformationTalkRadio.com. For more information, visit USA.TheKnowledgeBook.net. To find answers to life's questions, you need to look within yourself. Dr. Glenna Rice brings your questionable conversations on Transformation Talk Radio each month. Tune in each month for insight into how you can live up to your full potential. Dr. Glenna is a physical therapist, certified access consciousness, and access body class facilitator. How does it get any better than this? For more information on Dr. Glenna Rice and her work, visit GlennaRice.com. Hey, everybody. Welcome back. Welcome back. One of the things I loved is, you know, I said this before about Mitch. When I saw the book and then I read the book and I read it again, you know, one of the things that I realized as I went through this book, the way that I've gotten to where I am today and uh, it, it and first of all, 
would not be any part of anything without all of you. You are the best listeners on the planet. I love you. And what we're doing next year is implementing everything you've ever asked for in our technology. But what I love about this is when I read Mitch's book, I realized that for so long, I felt alone in how I was going about this. So Benny, let's give three copies of Mitch's book away. 1-800-930-2819. And Mitch, what is the best way for people to find out about you to get their own copy of the book and also your other books? Sure, thank you. They could just throw my name into Google, Mitch Horowitz. It'll take you straight to my website. There's lots of articles, links. My email is there if people have any questions. Um, they can find The Miracle Club at Amazon, at Barnes & Noble. It's part of a new promotion at Barnes & Noble in January. Or from local booksellers. You can just buy it anywhere in audio, digital, or print. Well, look, during the break, I was telling you how I, I'm in the, I go back to school. I'm not a young chicken when I go back to school, by the way. But I, I, I had a, I, I don't know, everything lined up. And, you know, off I went after a year at Columbia, met the right people that said, you got to go on. Ended mm -hmm. up in Claremont, mm -hmm. uh, didn't know anything about any of this. Yeah. End up with my proposal mm -hmm. on studying psychological contracts between two people. See, that had never been done before. Mm, yeah. And then, yeah. Uh, and then one of the guys on my committee, one of the professors, he just didn't like me, period, okay? Yeah. And he happen. said, you're not going to do it. You need to get Denise Rousseau on your committee or we are not approving it. Now, this was not even my dissertation. Long story short, I'm sitting there. I get her phone number. I get a hold of her. She said, I have a window. You got to get it to me Saturday. Yeah. And it's Friday. Yeah. And the only way I'm going to get it from Seattle to Pittsburgh is FedEx overnight. She gets it. Crack of dawn. I think it was like 150 bucks. And I'm like, I'm just doing it. And yep. I did that. Yeah. She got it. Before he even got up, she replied back and say, I love it. I'm in. That doesn't make sense to people. Right. I have to say to your listeners <laughs> that the story that you just told is everything that they've ever been looking for. If they will really, really hear what's in between the folds of it. So Listen up, everybody. If you're driving, safely pull over to the shoulder of the road because what Pat just said is what you have been looking for. Listen very, very carefully to this. You're saying you had a guy on your dissertation committee who didn't like you. This does occur. He placed maybe what could be considered an excessive demand on you. You reached out to the person who you, who's, who's, whose imprimatur you needed. She said yes, and as an impoverished graduate student who probably <laughs> didn't know where her next falafel sandwich was coming from, you made the decision to spend $100, $150 at FedEx to send this thing you know, overnight, uh, one-third across the country. There are probably 1% of people in this population of ours walking around who would do that. And by doing that, you performed an act that was both physical and I would surmise extra physical because you demonstrated absolute passionate, obsessive commitment to something regardless of cost, regardless of convenience, regardless of whether it seemed rational or not to your friends or to your peers or to your colleagues. And when you do that, you're not only doing something, you're not only performing an act of self-agency in the world, which is good in and of itself, but 
that kind of obsessive, passionate act marshals and concentrates all the forces of the psyche. It's the only way that anything ever gets done. In the book of Revelation, not a book of scripture that I pour over nightly, but in the book of Revelation, it says, if you're lukewarm, I will spit you out of my mouth. If you're yeah. lukewarm, life discloses nothing to us if we make halfway measures. And I tell you, people don't understand that. And even people who do feel that they understand it need to take a second look and ask themselves, gee, do I really, do I really? Because so many of our problems and so many of our questions about metaphysics, you know, how do I use affirmations? How do I use visualizations? What's the right way to pray? All of these things, you know, we're, we're, we're sort of trying to figure out the operating instructions and we're encountering different people and different books who have different methods. Your affirmations have to be in past tense, present tense. All of those needless complexities get wiped away through an act of passionate intensity. And I salute you. And I've done that myself. I have gone to, I've had famous people say they would consider endorsing my book. And I've done the same thing. I've spent $100, you know, to get a book out overnight from FedEx to Connecticut. And I've gone back to FedEx the next day and given a signed copy of the book to the very nice uh, salesperson whose name was Kingsley, who helped me, you know, get the book out to Connecticut. Because I don't take for granted that if a business or a person says they're going to do something, they actually do it. So when things work in New York, it's like a jubilee year. It's extraordinary. Yes. <laughs> so, you know, I was so old. It is a like, jubilee year. Yeah, yeah. I know. And, so, and, and I would just say to people, and, and I always say to people, if you're going to take one message from my work, take this. Having an absolute passionate aim, even an obsessive aim, that's the turnkey. That's the closest thing that life grants us to a magic elixir. And all the other questions, how do I use my prayers? How do I use my affirmations? It's not that they're not important, but that they're secondary to that arrival at a passionate, definite chief aim. And you demonstrated it by spending 100, 150 bucks when you're a broke graduate student. You said, well, you know what? I may miss a meal tonight, but I'm going to get this thing out to the person who I need to reach. So few people would do that. So few people would do that. I love what you're talking about because I'm going through this now. This is not like a one-time thing. So that's why I wanted to talk with you because you're, you, you're really referencing this throughout the book in so many ways, especially when you're quoting Emerson throughout the book. The thing that I love about this, and, and I would love for you to comment on it, is don't, what's that expression? Don't give up before the miracle happens. I like that. Yeah. We, all have the moments yes. <laughs> where we feel like we are, you gotta be kidding. I mean, we all do. Yep, yep. I, not only did I go through it with that particular situation on my proposal, but even to the end where I had finished my dissertation, had a great team of people, great help, and I missed the deadline for mm. my graduation. Mm. And I thought, I'm just gonna call them. And I called them. And I said, okay, I know I missed the deadline, but I really do need to graduate. We don't even make the call sometimes. We don't make the call. That's we don't exactly make right. The call. That's exactly right. I, I, you're saying so much that's important. And what was the expression you used? Uh, the, don't, don't, don't quit. Don't, don't give quit. up before the miracle happens. Yeah, yeah. I often counsel people, you don't know. You don't know that this chapter is closed. You, you can't be certain. You know, um, 
this is uh, uh, going to sound like a divergence, but it speaks exactly to your yeah. point. Um, in the mid-1890s, there was this weird suicide wave sweeping through the U.S. It mostly affected young men. There was this weird spike in suicides among young men. And nobody could figure out why. The nation was at peace at the time. It was prosperous. It was just a complete mystery why there appeared to be a spike in suicides. And the philosopher William James, one of my heroes who I quote throughout the yeah. book, yeah. wrote an essay to address this suicide crisis in 1895 called Is Life Worth Living? And he came up with many wonderful, wonderful insights uh, as to you know, how to address this, this suicide crisis and ways that people could look at their lives in a new way to find a sense of meaning and possibility. And one of the things he said in the essay, and it was a small line, so small that it was quite easy to miss and so simple that it was quite easy to write off, but it could make all the difference. He said, look, if you're facing circumstances that you feel are really, truly unbearable, fair enough, fair enough. But can you give it just another 24 hours to see what tomorrow's post may bring, what tomorrow's news may bring? One should never give up on the, the possibility, and it's more than a possibility, it's a fact. Mm -hmm. In as much as life does deliver tragedy and catastrophe to us, and it does, I, I've never felt that we live under one overarching mental super law. There's a lot of things happening in life. Inasmuch as life visits tragedy and catastrophe on us, it also visits on us extraordinary, absurdly good news. Yeah. And it happens in as much as tragedy happens. No cynic would ever say, well, tragedy doesn't occur. That's ridiculous. Of course, a cynic would agree with that. But the cynic must also agree that absurd, absurd good news happens. And it can befall us at just that moment when we feel we're at the end of our rope. I'm not saying that's a business plan. Saying something great may happen tomorrow is not how you treat an illness or run a business. But in terms of your personal life, as you were saying, don't quit before the miracle or don't conclude that the chapter is closed when you have no way of verifying that. The chapter may not be closed. So making that one more phone call or one more effort or just waiting, even though it could be agony, it can bring exactly what oh, you yeah. don't you don't have the, the the data, you don't have the facts to conclude that that's not reasonable. I love in the book when you reference James Allen, I love this quote and I want to talk about it because this is so important. Mm -hmm. You know, I work with salespeople and I work with my own sales team and I work with other salespeople and there is this thing that happens, except if you're my friend in New York who's like a mega sales person. Yes. There's this thing that happens and in the book, and I want to talk about this because this is so key to what we're talking about. You go in here and I'm going to read it, right? You tell the story of, of feeding habits of birds, right? Mm -hmm, and you go mm -hmm. tell the story. And then his punchline is, it's not scarcity that produces <laughs> competition. He concludes it is abundance. Yeah. It is abundance. Yeah. And I went on to think about that. Um, and, and then he goes on. I love this. I love this writing. And I love this reference you used. It, it, scarcity produces its own form of ruthlessness and even horror, a truth seen in conflicts around the world and explored with unflinching honesty. And you go on to talk about that. The thing I love about this is whether it's scarcity or abundance yeah. for me. If I don't stay in the possibility energy. Yes. First of all. 
I was rejected by Claremont in my mind. However, I was put on a wait list. Uh-oh. But I didn't stop my life. I packed up my stuff. I moved to Seattle. I waited yeah. in Seattle. Yeah, yeah. I did. Then when I got accepted, it was so surprising. I got yes. a letter. Yes. And I had no money. Yes. I, I, went, I ended up showing up down in California. I somehow found an apartment with great roommates. I somehow ended up there. I used a credit card to pay for my tuition. Yep, yep, listen. I'm telling you, people yep. really wanted to send me away. Yeah, yeah. And that's interesting, too, because I've wrestled with those questions myself. We're told quite wisely, quite wisely, that successful people don't use credit cards and so on. And it's like, mm, it's not that simple. You know, if you're a responsible person, microcredit can be a lifeline. It can be a life saver and it's it's if it's handled well and it's not exploitative and you're intelligent about it microcredit can be a lifesaver and i like what you did because i again you know it harkens back to what we were talking about about spending the 150 dollars there was a philosopher i was talking to once and he said to me what do you do when someone offers you a gift and i stared at him blankly great student of human nature that i am and he said to me you accept it you accept it and sometimes accepting a gift means putting yourself through some very difficult paces. Uh, back in 2005, I was just gearing up my writing career, and I felt like I was still very much a bench warmer. And there was a man named Obadiah Harris who ran an organization in L.A. with which I'm affiliated today called the Philosophical Research Society. And they're a great esoteric organization that studies world religions. They were founded by the scholar Manly P. Hall, who is uh, one of my ah. students. Yeah. Ah. <laughs> we're in the same neighborhood. <laughs> and, and so Obadiah, I lived in New York City at the time, and Obadiah was in Los Angeles. And he said to me, look. If you ever happen to be in the neighborhood, our speaking podium is open to you. And I said, great, thank you very much. I got off the phone, I sent him an email, and I said, I will be in the neighborhood in September. I had no plans, ways or means specifically of, of getting there. Uh, he, his invitation made it very clear to me that nobody was paying my way. But I determined that I was not going to let this invitation slip through my fingers because speaking at a place like that, was the kind of thing that would help put me on the map. And my talk that day, which was in September of 2005, was called The Occult Philosophy in America. And it was mm-hmm. about the history of supernatural religions in American life from the colonial days up through the present. That talk became the basis for my first book, Occult America, which came out in 2009, changed everything for me, changed everything for me. And it would not have occurred, or it certainly wouldn't have unfolded in the symmetrical way that it did if I had thought, well, who has the time or the money to get to California, for God's sake? you know. But I just knew that accepting this invitation, regardless of the burdens it might place on me, was the equivalent of accepting a gift. And it's, it's, it's just another way of expressing what you were doing. And again, when you take that action, I mean, it's funny, we're supposed to be talking about affirmations and visualizations and prayers and writing things down and vision boards. And I love all of that. And I do all of that. And I write about all of that. But what you're talking about, that is a vision board. That is an affirmation. That is a prayer. It's a prayer that you sweat. And that, that is a visualization. Those actions 
have a metaphysical component. So take them. Yeah, take absolutely. Them. And what I love about this is I'm not saying I have big fat vision board. And on another day when you come back, I will tell you how I was literally getting a treatment at one of the earnest home treatment from my prayer partner sitting in a room in front of my computer praying about not the not this email to Denise Rousseau, but about whether or not they she liked the the final body of research. Wow. And I'm pr- we're sitting there, and my prayer partner is going like berserko, crazy <laughs> prayer, right? And all of a sudden, I got all of a sudden I hear on the computer in the background, ding, 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 ding. <laughs> Denise Rousseau had just emailed me the changes to the d- d- dissertation. Uh-huh. So what you're talking about is the missing link that you cover yeah. in your book. Yeah. Yes, visualizations. Yes, affirmations. But you've got to have the inspiration, which I call passion, and the perspiration, which is action. And I think those two things have been left out of the equation sometimes. I agree. I agree. And it's funny because my heroes, the people I love within the New Thought movement, like Neville Goddard, for example, who I have tattooed on my arm. I love Neville. I love Neville. But we all have to find our own way within these teachings. And, you know, I try to point out to people, although he didn't emphasize it, Neville would do things in the world. I mean, he traveled places. If he wanted to get somewhere, he went out and bought a ticket or put his name on a waiting list. You cannot just be passive. It's a misreading of New Thought tradition to feel that, you know, I'll sit back and my fields will get plowed. Do everything that we're talking about, plus affirmations, plus prayer, plus visualizations. It's all one thing. I don't make differences anymore in my life between the inner and the outer, between attachment, non-attachment, essence and personality. It's all one thing. Your act that day at the FedEx office or your move uh, out to Seattle was as much a prayer as anything that would cross your lips at night. It's all one thing. It's employing the full energies of the psyche, mental, physical, emotional, extra physical. I love this. And oh my gosh, I can't believe this hours. So what I love, what I learned about this is what you talk about in the book. For those of you just tuning in, Mitch Horowitz, the book is The Miracle Club. Copies of the book we're going to give away. If we don't give them all away today, we'll do it on Facebook. But here's what I love. Many folks don't take on, don't take on the critics in this. Thank yeah. you for doing it in the way <laughs> you've done. Thank you. Thank you for doing it at the end of the book after you present your case. Because one of the things I love about this and what I've learned is you cannot read and do the research you did and cite the people you cited without knowing how passionate they were. But here's the last question, and I think I got four minutes. What it was that I discovered even today about this network and the naysayers, and we're going from two channels to 10 in 2019. Somebody said to me the other day, do you know you have the largest positive talk radio network podcast? I said, no, I don't know this. How do you make, how, why are you, it doesn't matter to me. Right, That right. thing doesn't matter to me. <laughs> but here's what I want to say. Yeah. I don't waver about my belief. Yeah, yeah. Do you know what I mean? Totally, totally. If I had the trifecta, I probably would add, but don't hold me to this, Emma Curtis Hopkins to the other two guys you mentioned. Absolutely. Her covenants, the 12 covenants. Yeah. I had no clue of what they were, but I memorized them and I said them because the belief is so important. 
Have yes. we left that power of our conviction? I'm not talking about, oh, Mitch, I believe it's going to happen. I'm talking about the strength and conviction yeah. that I know I'm going to go do this. I know right. it in every bone in my body. Tell, talk a little bit about that. And I know, I, I know I'm saving this till the end, but I, no, I've got to ask you about it. It's wonderful. I mean, I, I truly believe it's everything. It's It's everything. I, I think there's such energy that comes from leaving yourself no way out. You know, it's extraordinary. You know, one of my kids is into like a, a number, like the rappers, the hip hop artists who come up through SoundCloud and they have a minimalist style. They engage in a hip hop minimalism. They, uh, they all like, they're very heavily tattooed. They all have like their own personal style. And a lot of these artists, very young, they have tattoos on their face and on their neck. Yeah. And one of them made the point, and I love this, and he was probably about 22 years old. He said, the reason I have tattoos on my face and neck, including his eyelids, is because I leave myself no way out. You know, I know I can't get a regular job after this. <laughs> like, it's this or it's nothing. And I said, that's beautiful. That's beautiful. Because this 22-year-old kid was saying to himself, I want this so much and so completely and I'm good at it and I know what I'm doing and I'm a real artist, you know, not just dreaming or talking a game, but playing a game. There was something so powerful about that, about saying that was his way of saying, I'm burning the fleet. I'm burning the fleet. That's right. A guy with tattoos on his eyelids can't get a job at H&R Block if the hip hop thing doesn't work out. And I don't intend for the hip hop thing not to work out. So, you know, I mean, you could say, well, God, that's an extreme way to live. And it is, it's true, but he's the one being quoted. He's, other people are talking about him. So for him, that was a dedication that made sense, that worked. Now, I'm yeah. not saying you have to do that, but that kind of passion is what we're talking about. But you have to do something like it. I love that like example. That. I actually did try to get a tattoo, but I'm allergic to it. Oh. But it, here's yeah. the thing that I love about what you said. I attended uh, Imago therapy back when, I don't know, to try to save a relationship. I don't remember anything about the therapy. It did not save the relationship, but I remembered one thing that I yeah. live in my life to this day. And I remember the Harville Hendricks, I was in the room with him, saying, you must close all the exits. Oh. Uh -huh. And I, it, you just gave that example. If you have a dream and a passion and a purpose, and you have a safety net where yeah. the exit door is still there and open. Yes, I think our vision, our passion, our purpose leaks out, may not leak out overnight, right. may not right. be like a flood, right. but is that thing that flood. happens that sucks the life out of possibility and creativity. For I love that. I love that. It's it, All of this is another way of saying burn the fleet behind you. I don't know who that expression originated with. It's attributed to 12 different people, but it, it, it contains a great deal of truth. Sealing the exits, leaving yourself no way out, tattooing your face. That's what we'll do. We'll coin a new expression today, an homage to the hip-hop community. Tattoo your face. You can't go back. You can't be a manager at Pizza Hut once your face is tattooed. So do that, and let's see what happens. At least you'll know. First of all, I think you'll succeed. I think you'll succeed. Yeah, you, you have and, to. And, and you have to, and you'll know that you gave it everything, and that is so, so important. So tattoo your face. That's what we are going to coin as a slogan today. I love it. 
<laughs> Mitch, thank you for today. I love the Pleasure. book, Pleasure. The Miracle Club. And there's a lot in here we didn't talk about, but I really wanted to have this conversation with you because I see you in the world as this. Um, how can people find out more about you and how can they get a copy of the book? Oh, gosh, you can buy The Miracle Club anywhere, Amazon, Barnes & Noble, local booksellers, anywhere you buy your book. It's on digital, audio, physical. Uh, if you put my name, Mitch Horowitz, into Google, it'll take you straight to my website. There's lots of links and articles there. My email is there if anybody wants to reach out to me. I always write back to people. And uh, you can throw my name into Amazon. You'll also find lots to choose from. Uh, one last thing. Please. What's next for you? Wow. What's the next Mitch thing? <laughs> I'm thinking about it. There's a book gestating in me that yeah, takes tattoo this, your face. Yeah. <laughs> I'm tattooing <laughs> my face. There's a book I have in mind that takes mind power to its ultimate, ultimate extent. We're going to storm heaven. So that's what I'm thinking about. I love it. Thank yeah. you so much. Thank you thank for you. coming here today. Bless. I love Loved this. Thank, um, you. thank you for reminding me for sure of not just why we're doing what we're doing here. I have a great team of people I work with. They're yeah. amazing. Love Benny. Ev Benny, everybody here, Linda. But thank you for reminding me, not about the why, but thanking you for, for reminding me of the how. Thank you. Right on. Thank you. Mitch Horowitz, everybody. He'll be back. I know it. I'm sure. Dr. Pat. For more information, <laughs> go to the Dr. Pat show. We got another hour coming up. We're not done. Benny, thank you for pushing all the right buttons. But you know what? Don't touch that dial. But even if you do touch it, it's not a dial anymore. It's like a button or a <laughs> touch screen. I don't know what it is. We'll be right back. <laughs> The audio was via a Skype call.